Welcome to the Belief Hole, curious listener. As you begin your trip into the darkness, we'd like to let you know that this isn't the true beginning of your journey. Our first full season of 31 episodes has been archived and can be accessed by signing up to be an expansion member at beliefhole.com. The show has evolved significantly since the first season, which makes these episodes a bit more unrestrained and colorful in their nature. They are unique and a special addition to Belief Hole's history. If you enjoy the whole going forward, then there's no doubt that the first season will be a welcome addition to your thirst for Belief Hole's mysteries. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we take you on a journey that you won't soon forget. Coming up on this episode of Belief Hole. He didn't get lost all of a sudden. He deliberately went that direction for four miles. And then at some point his footsteps stop and then there's nothing. What would cause him to do something like that? That's the question. That's the question. That's the question. All this ancient knowledge, ancient history about our Earth that we used to believe, as time goes on, the maps start changing. And the idea is that they became more accurate. But it is plausible that the topography of the maps was evolving, not because the ones previously were wrong, but potentially the Earth was changing. The Earth was changing, and we're seeing an evolution of that. Interesting point of fact on that is the search parties that went out reported seeing strange lights and hearing strange sounds in the distance. I mean, he could have been picked up by anything paranormal, right? It could have been... An abominable snowman. An abominable snowman, although there were no snowman tracks, so... Yeah, but he's an interdimensional being. Right, that's true. He could have just snatched him away to the North Pole. I still believe that we can't know how things were. And to look back, when something doesn't align with how we see things today, to just drop it in the fiction category, this could be a kind of reality of the North Pole. What could be under that sea, under that ice? It's under there. That's the mystery. I was really excited about the Admiral Byrd episode we did, and then I read his supposed journal. And then in the conversation with the king of the inner earth or whatever, he was like, yes, you may have noticed our flugelrads on the surface flying in the sky. <laughs> and the credibility went, It's such like a 1950s word for an alien ship. Yeah. The king of the inner earth is listening to this broadcast right now going, there are called flugelrads. <laughs> Synchronicity, Sasquatch, Homunculus, Alien Races, Satanism in Hollywood, MK Ultra, Tartaria. There's like a whole. I've been watching this one guy. Like, Close the door, in. Jury! Close your door! What's the uh, inner earth disagreements? Ghost Dad! <laughs> I like that movie. Dogman, Bohemian Grove, Corey Feldman, Magicians are Demons, Specters, Spirits, Sleep, Paralysis, Strange Disappearances, Sky Whale Phenomena, yes. Alternative History, Shadow People. Shh, quiet, I'm trying to say words with the mouth. It's getting dicey out there. Poltergeists. That's cool. Anunnaki. What is the moon? <laughs> Elf Towers. I would never talk about it. That's old. Y2K. Cover ups. Apocalyptic catastrophe. Vampire. Oh, snap. That's new. <laughs> Season two coming at you. Welcome back, Beliefings. Well, hello, hello. We have missed you. We have missed you. Deeply. But don't worry. Don't fear. Season two is here. Yes. And we are <laughs> coming back with a vengeance. Hope you guys liked the new intro. Changed a little stuff. Added some groovy yeah. music. A little more energy. 
Yeah, we, we just wanted to do something a little different for our second season. So we got some changes coming up with the show. We're going to get into that in a second. But first, let's tell you guys what we're going to be talking about in this episode. Yeah. We're going to be discussing what I've tentatively titled Polar Mysteries and Strange Expeditions. Oh, good time for Hence that. Hence the winter season. Yes. We want to get into the feeling of the season. And, you know, we could have jumped from Halloween, which was like our season finale the last season, to the next holiday and done Krampus Christmas and all that stuff. But I feel like Krampus has been out there a lot. And I just wanted to get into kind of the the edgy gloom of winter. Right. You know? Yeah. And I was looking into Scandinavian folklore because it'd be the time of year for that, you know, elves and trolls. Yes. And, you know, wintry sorts of creatures. But she didn't do that, did you? Well, I did. But there are surprisingly little compelling accounts of people seeing fairies. Not a lot of factual there, documentation. They might be out there. I just couldn't find really good examples of it. So I switched gears a little bit. And in the second half of our show today, we're going to be doing McKelly and Bembe. We're going to go deep. Another exploration. McKelly and sort of Bembe. Feel. What is that? I guess you'll tell me later. A sauropod. A what? Dinosaur. It's a dinosaur? Like a big little foot. From like Africa? a brontosaurus, right? Like a big little foot. <laughs> big little foot. Okay. Little foot was big. Well, I guess he grew McKellian big. McKellian Bembe. Yeah. It's African, right? Yeah, in the Congo. Okay, so that's going to be interesting. A little cryptid stuff in the second part. So that's coming up later. Um, we got some news for you. Yeah, so as Chris uh, tantalizingly dangled, we have... A second part. We are doing something different with the show, Switching guys. Switching it up. We're going to be getting you guys more content. Well, specifically patrons. Patrons. We're going to be getting more content. We are now going to be doing double episodes of our double show. Double episodes. Yes. Thank you, John. I love this. <laughs> I'm the hype man. <laughs> you are, you're like the movie trailer guy in the background. Movie trailer guy. <laughs> but yeah, so double episodes. So if you like the show, you like what we're doing, head on over to a Patreon. If you get in early before we up our tier level for the new tier we're going to be doing for these bonus episodes, you'll be automatically upgraded to this new tier where we're going to be having basically a whole second episode attached to the first episode. So we're going to, it's basically an extension of the first episode, but it's, so the full episode is going to be twice as long. And if you're a Patreon supporter at that tier, you're going to get that bonus half of the episode. Does that make sense? Did I explain mm-hmm. Yeah. That? Basically, if you become a patron, you get another episode for each time we put out an episode. Exactly. Yeah. So if you don't have enough of the- You said that way more succinctly. <laughs> if, you don't, if you're not getting enough of the whole and you want more, you know, we had off the cuff episodes we've been doing on our Patreon. We just felt like patrons deserve- episodes that are just as rich with deep research, deeper dives into some stuff, you know, some more sound design, polished stuff. So We could still do off-the-cuffs too occasionally, mm-hmm. where it's yeah. just a little bit more free bantery stuff. We'll right. still have occasional off-the-cuffs, other bonus content, but our primary extra bonus now is going to be those extra it's episodes. It's going to be an actual episode. Yeah, and that's going to help us too, because the more we put out there in Patreon, we'll be able to do this longer. Mm-hmm. Spread the hole even wider. As dirty as that sounds, I know, I'm sorry. It's so, the whole, I don't know if it sounds dirty, it sounds just kind of gross. Spread the whole sounds dirty. Okay, to expand <laughs> expand the belief hole, I'll just say the whole thing, okay. uh, further so we can make this a sustainable enterprise where we can do this long term instead of pulling all-nighters after work, you know, to get this done. Get in now, jump in the hole now, go over to Patreon, sign up, because I think we might raise the cost slightly after we do this advertising campaign. Yeah. So if you want to get in early, sign up and you will get two extra episodes a month. Yeah. And if you are a patron already, since you guys have hung with us this yes. long. Thank you so much. And been patient with us, putting out extra content, slow dripping it as we've had to do. We want to reward you guys by bumping you guys up to the whatever tier it's going to be for these bonus episodes. So, oh, and the stingers, that's going to have to go up because we owe a lot of people stingers that we've been working on and we don't want to make anybody wait. So we're going to have to bump that up too. So we just wanted to get that out there to you guys, let you know what's going on. And thank you so much for hanging with us and helping us do this. Yeah. Speaking of which, we got Molly and 
Benji. Ben. Stingers coming up. Coming up today. Two new stingers. For those thunder buzzards. Awesome. <laughs> uh, awesome. All right. Well, that's all of the boring housekeeping yeah, stuff. Yeah, we had to do that. But yeah. we are excited. We got some new fun stuff in development. So. Yeah, we are really excited because it's going to allow us to do more and just talk to you guys more. And yeah. We, I'm excited for the topics this season. I think they're going to be pretty rad. Yeah, we're going to get into some really cool stuff. But let's get back to this episode because that's what we're here for today. Oh, are we still doing what we're doing that today? Those were hilarious. All right. I'm working on very little sleep. My brain is... He's on caffeine, CBD, and Kratom right now. Right. I didn't take any Kratom. Oh, you didn't? I took it for you. I was afraid that too many things would just... That's probably a smart move. Yeah. Yeah, these uh, double episodes now we're doing, I think definitely patrons deserve it, um, but it is going to be a change for us because it's double the research... Double, double, the the, double the fun, double the editing. Yeah, it's going to be a lot, but good thing we like doing it. Yeah, yeah. I was up until, well, it was about 7 o'clock. Yeah, you texted me at 6.30 in the morning and said, uh, just wrapping up my research here. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. But then, yeah, that's my brain. Well, let's get into it. <laughs> yeah. I, my first note on here, I guess, was something I wanted to mention in my mind state. Gremlin voices through Dollar General sleep aid pills. What? was something I wanted to briefly touch on here. Yeah, um, I wondered what that was. Yeah, I had a sleep aid the last the night. A uh, sleep aid? You sound like a ninety year old woman well, in a retirement the, home. Because I it was <laughs> it was cheap. It was the dollar store, so it's generically the generic brand like is sleep aid. It's not melatonin. I don't even know what's in it. But well, that's always good. Yeah. Well, it wasn't. <laughs> Things at the dollar store you eat and make you go to bed. Fairy dreams. Oh, fairy reality is what it was. So those of you who may have listened to the show, you may have heard me reference my smoke monster experience from uh, sleep deprivation that I had, where I had that romantic entanglement with that creature that flew in my room that was mm-hmm, made of smoke. Mm-hmm. It's romantic. We'll have to cover that on a future episode. But I took these sleep aids. <laughs> sleep aids. It does sound weird. These sleeping pills, I guess, the generic. They were from Dollar General, like two bucks. So they're probably made of, with great materials from China. And I started hearing this. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, Jess? Oh, it actually sounded like it was coming from uh, outside. Yeah, no, it wasn't in it my wasn't head. like a mind thought. This was in my room. Weird. Yeah. So my girlfriend wasn't gagging or gargling on weird phlegm stuff. It was coming <laughs> okay. out of some, well, because that sound, it sounds like, it sounded like a guttural, you know. I know. But it wasn't coming from it her. It sounded weird. And it was out in the room. It wasn't in my brain space. It was just out there. But it's, in the, when you're in these states, you're so delirious that you're not um, concerned. Right. You don't get scared. There's something to sleep deprivation where you experience stuff like this. Like I was seeing, seeing things too a lot. I'm sure people have experienced this too from sleep deprivation, but it's an interesting state. I want to explore it It's the twilight state, right? Yeah. In between sleep and wakefulness. I'd like to stay up a few days and just like write notes of what I'm, because I think some of it might be like last night I heard, I because I was up all night again for like two days really. I didn't get much sleep the night before, but I heard uh, what sounded like Middle Eastern country music, which isn't a thing. Obviously. Might need to hear what that actually is. It was I like, can't hear that in my head. I was trying to think of how I could recreate it by singing it, but I can't. But it was like basically I was hearing a whole band of weird noise, but I could hear the percussion, and it was coming through the white noise of my fan. Oh, we've yeah. talked about this before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The things in the white noise, and I could hear it stop, and then a radio announcer come in and start talking. Weird. Like from the break, from the almost like it was a radio transmission. Maybe you're picking coming up those. Maybe in that in between state, you're picking up radio frequencies that are bouncing around. Yeah, we're gonna have to do atmosphere. an episode on the in between state white noise voices or something because that. That's fascinating to me. And yeah, and we I've, actually experienced I think it. most people probably have had that experience to some degree. Yeah. And if you haven't, then you get too much sleep and you should try it. <laughs> try it out. Um, but yeah. Okay. So back to the episode at hand. Let's get in it. My brothers. Let's go out into the Arctic. All right. So I'm going to start by, before we get into the mysteries of the North Pole and the potential forgotten history and landscape thereof, which may lead us back to the inner earth or at least point in that direction. 
Interesting. And we have tales of little people. Oh. Know, just reference. I'm not going to go into those stories, but it, oh. there's a, essentially I'll be discussing the famous or infamous map of Mercator, the famous cartographer who we know from the map projections at school, make it turn into the globe. You know, it's probably one of the most recognizable images of the earth. Yeah, a little side note on that. Isn't that incorrect? His, the, I mean, the image of the continents, they're actually a lot longer, elongated. Yeah, it, he had to do it in order for navigation. Right. You know, you had to make the lines work in a certain way so that they would they would work exactly at every each and every uh, latitude and longitude, but to stretch it out on a flat map from the uh, globe model, which may or may not be correct anyway, because who knows where we live. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they had to adjust. So, anyways, that's that's a, that's neither here nor there. But you're correct, Chris. It's not actually representing the size of the continents, which correctly. is just an interesting side note. Is that because it's how most people know the continents to look right? Like it has Africa the size of Greenland, when in reality Africa is like what eight times, ten times bigger than Greenland. Yeah. If anybody out there is listening right now on their phone or laptop, look up the actual map of the continents because it doesn't look like what you think it looks like. In reality, we have no idea. Yeah. Because who can you trust? You know, who's really telling us what the earth looks like? Mm. Satellites. Yes. Thank you, John. Oh. <laughs> he agrees. <laughs> um, okay. So we'll be getting to that later and that's going to be fascinating talking about the different mysterious islands surrounding that gigantic magnetic rock island at the center of the North Pole. Cool. So that's coming up. Neat. But yeah, as I said, we're going to be getting into the gloom now. The wintry season is upon us. I feel it lately. We're going to break some glaciers. It's been dark. It's been dark. Just like the depths of Antarctica, which is where we're going now. I got two stories coming up, and I have this section titled Tragedy and Mystery in Antarctica, because these are mysterious stories. I think they're fascinating. However, they are tragic, so we don't do this without recognizing... I mean, you guys will hear it. This, the second one is specifically sad to me. Aw. But anyways, we're... Oh, great. Yeah, we're, <laughs> and it's going to get light later, so just, you know, rest, relax, listen to the story, but don't get too down from the tragedy. That's all I'm saying. Because dinosaurs are coming. Because dinosaurs are coming. That's all that matters. <laughs> okay, so this takes place in uh, Admiral Byrd Station, the South Pole Station in Antarctica. Oh, that's fascinating. Admiral Byrd Station? Yep, who we touched on before, his supposed trip to the inner Earth. I remember that. His journal, yeah. Check out that episode, guys, if you're interested. I'm season one. Okay, so this is the story of Carl Robert Dish. The story begins. Access granted. Carl Dish. A National Bureau of Standards scientist wintering at Bird Station traveled between the main station complex and the radio noise building performing his scientific studies. He had traveled the route over 25 times so far this season. At 0915, or 915 a.m., on May 8, 1965, Dish departed the radio noise building, presumably returning to the main station complex, 7,000 feet south of the radio noise building. The handline connects the radio noise building to the main station. Because when winter conditions are really bad down there, you hold on to that handline to guide you oh, from building to building. Yeah. It's like a, like a rope or something? Yeah. Okay, that oh, makes sense. When by 1,000 hours, Dish had not arrived back at Bird Station, a vehicle search party departed the station to search the area of the handline. At about 11.30, his trail was picked up leading west of Bird Station proper. It led to the southwest corner of the Skyway, a distance of about four miles. At this point, the search party returned to the station to refuel. They returned to the field and spent three more hours trying to pick up the trail, but to no avail. Winds of 25 to 30 knots and drifting snow covered the tracks made by Dish and rapidly covered the tracks of the Nodwell, making the safe return of the search party very difficult. They returned to Bird at 18-15 hours. At 1900, another search party was sent to investigate the area of the supply line and dump. No tracks were found. 
1950, all able hands were mustered and made a human chain search from the dump area to the end of the skiway. Flares were fired every half hour from the Aurora Tower and floodlights were rigged over the station. The party found occasional tracks and followed them about four miles south of the station where they disappeared. There is no noticeable shortening of stride in these tracks. Now that's an important point coming up. And again, another vehicle search party was launched at 7.40 on May 10th, equipped with two vehicles, a Jamesway, and sufficient fuel and provisions to last a week. It searched to about 12 miles south of the station, marking the trails with flags. No tracks were found, however. On May 12th, they searched the northeast and southeast sectors of Old Bird Station. The visibility was good, but darkness severely limited their range of vision. The next two days' visibility was so poor due to blowing snow and fog that no search was possible. Dish was fully clothed with the customary Antarctic clothing. The temperature during the search was minus 44 degrees Fahrenheit. The tracks that were found indicated that he did not contact the hand line, which started at the ladder of the radio noise building, but headed in a direction directly downwind. So he never grabbed onto the hand line to follow it. Instead, he turned and walked four miles. What would cause him to do something like that? That's the question. That's the question. That's the mystery. Due to the length of time Dish had been missing in the exposure of the Antarctic winter, he was presumed dead. Memorial services were held by his fellow men in Antarctica and by friends and relatives in his hometown. And that came from the Bolton of the U.S. Antarctic Projects Officer, an official U.S. Navy publication verbatim. Yeah, I mean, the fascinating part about this case is that he's walking down this rope. Or he should be walking down the rope. He starts walking down this rope. I don't know. I think it said that he didn't even begin, that he never made contact with the hand line. How do they know that? I guess they'd see his foot tracks. Yeah. But he cuts, was it west? Towards the airdrop where planes come in and drop off materials. He just goes that way. And they were expecting him. Like they were waiting for him to arrive at Bird Station proper. Yeah, he said he what was... What does that mean, proper? That's like the main station. Oh, okay. It's proper. It's proper. But yeah, so they're expecting him. When he doesn't show up, they're like, oh, that's weird. And they find those tracks and he just, he instead of heading towards the station, he just goes out as if he saw something or heard something. What would compel someone to walk four miles out with no line of reference? You know, he's he knows he knows how to be smart in this environment. Right. A snow siren? A snow siren. Oh, calling him out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the sailors, but in the snow. Uh, he traveled a distance of four miles yeah. um, into the snow. No, That's crazy. Like, yeah, the, the only thing in that direction, like you said, was the supply drop, where they would sometimes get supplies drop in. So, you know, some people suggest maybe he saw lights over there thinking there was an unscheduled supply drop, but he didn't report it. He didn't call in to say he was going to do that. Did it say what the weather was like? Um, at the time that he left? Yeah. That's a good question, actually. It couldn't have been blizzarding yet because... Because he came tracks. out and they followed his tracks for I just wonder what the visibility was like. Yeah. If, yeah, if he was able to see something. If he did see something. Well, if he did. interesting point of fact on that is the search parties that went out reported seeing strange lights in the sky shortly after the disappearance of Dish. Strange lights and hearing strange sounds in the distance. Now, do you hmm. know the source of that? It was the witness testimony of people who were on the actual search for him. Okay, because yeah. I came across that note, but someone said that it was contested. But that's interesting. If there were lights in the sky, that other people had been seeing interesting phenomena. Yeah. Um, 
One point I wanted to make about that his tracks seemed to not stutter. It was a straight line. There was no staggering. There was no indication that he was hesitating, was hesitating or wasn't sure where he was going. He had a clear, deliberate action to go that direction for whatever reason. It's another thing that shows that he didn't get lost all of a sudden. When he walked down from his tower, he deliberately went that direction for four miles. And then at some point his footsteps stop and then there's nothing. He's gone, the footsteps are gone, and you know, of course there's people say, well, maybe snow came in at some point and covered up the end, the end of those footsteps, but we don't know. Even then he still walked four miles in the winter without, without stopping, looking around, no, no Does, turning Does he have all. a radio or anything? I don't think, I don't so. think but him. it's odd that you wouldn't tell yeah, the people at the base, really hey, I'm gonna go this way for a little bit. I saw something, was he possessed by something? Was there something that drew him inexplicably or was he depressed? You know, are there, are there potential So is that the end of the story too? then? Or is there more to it? That's the end of, of what happened to him. Now there's-, there's Never found? Never found. Now Weird. there's suggestions and conjecture about what happened to him. And Chris has some stuff on that. Yeah, it's it's interesting because John Keel, who we've touched on before, one of the 14 investigators- We touched all over him. We touched all over him. <laughs> um, he's really ticklish. He's come up a lot in our episodes. But in his book, Our Haunted Planet, he comments on this mystery. Um, and this comes from his book, Our Haunted Planet. We do the- Oh, and that's the end of my story. Oh, yeah, that's the end. <laughs> Let's try that again. So we're going to another part? This is a quote I don't know from, if you'll need that sound. Just I just like mm, it. Okay. Yes, we do. <laughs> he set out to walk from his hut to the main station a short distance away, following a hard line that was strung as a guide for the path between the two points. When he failed to appear after 45 minutes, the other scientists went out searching for him in tracked vehicles. If Dish had fallen and was lying in the snow... Ron Sefton, the leader of the bird station, explained to William J. Perkinson of the Baltimore Sun, the Huskies would have seen him long before the searchers did. Similarly, if he had fallen and was covered by drifting snow, the dogs would have sighted the mound and rushed out to investigate it. That's the way Huskies are. The search went on for three days and covered a 35-mile area around the hut. Dish's own dog, a Husky called Gus, disappeared shortly afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of weird, right? Some of the searchers claimed they saw mysterious lights and heard engine noises in the distance. Antarctica is, of course, uninhabited, except for a handful of international scientists who work very closely with one another. So that's the argument. If these were sounds or noises coming from another station, they would have confirmed that when they talked to Bird Station. Yeah. But there wasn't anything that would have pointed to manned activity out there. Right. But yeah, his dog his dog went missing shortly after, which is sad, but also interesting that his dog of all the huskies goes missing after Well if he has I missed him. If he has an attachment to him, that would totally make sense. Find him. I can't stop thinking about the movie The Thing. John Carpenter's right. The Thing. It's exa- it's set up exactly in this kind of environment. You know, you have this South Pole station or this Antarctic station, uh, a guy in the radio tower, which was Kurt Russell's character. Uh, that's how this story begins. That's how the movie began, coming down from the radio tower. I wonder if that was inspired partially on this story. Yeah, maybe, like explaining what... It sounds kind of Because the movie that. came out, what, about 20 years after this disappearance? Yeah, uh, yeah a little less 80, than 20. 82, 82 was the movie. Yeah. Um, great movie. You guys have to watch that if that's you haven't great. seen John Carpenter's version, 1982. But um, but yeah, with the dogs and everything and, you know, almost like the seemingly... Because there was like kind of a... They were possessed by this thing, the, yeah. the thing. Yeah. Uh, and it just reminds me of that. Not that he was to say he was possessed, but it is weird how he inexplicably just ventures off deliberately. I still don't understand how, I'm sorry, when was this? Like what year? 65, I think. Oh, 65. Okay. I was thinking like, cause now you definitely have like radio communication right. and you'd probably let someone know if you're going way off the, 
path. Well, that's the other thing. He could have radioed right before he left, or he could have gone back up the tower and been like, hey, I see there's something crazy going on in the sky. I'm going to go follow it. For some reason, he just didn't do that and just went way off course. Well, that's weird in itself. Yeah. Here's a few of the basic explanations that people cite usually when they're discussing this uh, strange case. This case, yeah. Disappearance. These are the main theories on the case. Okay, one, he got lost in the weather. Bad weather conditions, he got lost. Okay. Uh, if, yeah, he but would, if he would have done, you know, his line of work, he's experienced there. It does, still doesn't explain why he went. Why he left the the hand rope, the right. hand line. Why he didn't use the hand, well, he wasn't going in the direction of the hand line. Exactly, but what I'm saying is it, it couldn't just be bad. Something had to spurn his initial um, right. separation from and, the line. And that's where the bad weather is. doesn't account for that. Yeah, no matter what happens to him, we don't know why he left, right? right? Um Okay, he fell in a, a crevasse somewhere is another theory, and which is totally possible, but at the same time, why did he go? We still don't know. Uh, also, the footprints don't end at a crevasse or crevice. Right. That's a good point. But I mean, this, the footprints could have been buried, right. as some people suggest. Um, this one is, you know, honestly, this one is probably the most rational to me as far as... Um, Ordinary explanations? Intention, that maybe he intentionally left suicide. Oh, just yeah. walked. Was, did he have any history of depression? Or? Still doesn't uh, account for his disappearance, though. Like, like where, where's the body? Yeah. Well, it's pretty hard to find. Although that's an interesting point, John, because the fact that the dogs couldn't pick up a scent, yeah, you know, the huskies couldn't find him. This goes back to the missing four-on-one stuff, where the dogs won't hunt. Right. You know, inexplicably, they'll either lay down, they'll they'll refuse to, you know, pick up the trail. Or the trail's just dead cold. That was the argument against him being buried under some snowdrift or a blizzard of, you know, falling snow because the dogs didn't, they would have found him because he wouldn't have been buried feet under the snow at that point. They were out searching. If they could see his footprints, they could see a body. Right. So why did the dogs not track? Why did they not find a man buried? the next, go read the next one. Okay, the next one. (laughs) John's excited for the next one. Alien abduction. This Mm. is the most likely one. Okay. Uh, this is out there, because I'm reading this from Reddit, by the way, these little bits for those out there listening. Uh, this is out there because his footprints just stopped and didn't continue. Wait, wait, this is just a, oh, this is a Reddit, Redditor's comment or yeah. something? I take this theory with a pinch of salt. Yeah, I'm just, I just quickly grabbed like the most common theories. Oh, okay. But yeah, that's one idea, you know, that, that obviously, I mean, he could have been picked up by anything, anything paranormal, right? It could have been, you know. An, if you, an abominable snowman. An abominable snowman, although there were no snowman tracks. So yeah, less but, likely. Yeah, but he's an interdimensional being. Right. That's, That's true. You can just snatch him away to the North Pole. It could have been one of those inner earth flugelrads that had flown up to the surface. Oh, yeah. Abducted him. Flugelrads? Do you remember that? That was, mm-hmm. that's why when I, I was really excited about the Admiral Byrd episode we did, and then I read his supposed journal that I was excited about that people said was a hoax. Uh, it was published by his nephew or something. It was a hoax. And then in the conversation <laughs> with like the, the king of the inner earth or whatever it was exactly, I don't remember. Uh, oh, I remember he was that, like, yeah. yes, you may have noticed our flugelrads on the surface flying in the sky. And it's like, <laughs> the credibility went, it's such like a 1950s <laughs> word for like, you know, an alien ship, yeah. a flugelrad. And how, how ironic. Shooting their whiz bobbers. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, with the fraggles. With the fraggles. There's the some, fraggle the king of the inner earth is listening to this broadcast right now going, there are cold flugel rats. <laughs> <of> my patience. He's <laughs> like, um, God damn it. I'm tired of sending my heart energy up there. I don't listen. Okay, so. Heart energy? Yeah. They are flugel rats. It was a very like metaphysical kind of oh, thing that's right. down there. Um, I'd love to go. If anyone knows the way. We'll get into that later, later in the episode. Um, so anyway, those are kind of the basic ideas. There is a, there's another one, actually. Um, the other theory that's more like uh, Cold War intrigue is the idea that he was working for the Soviet Union. Oh, he was going to meet a 
he was a spy and he was going to meet with someone from the Soviet Union out in the middle of Antarctica. Well, potentially a Russian Antarctic at, at base. base. Yeah. yeah. That's another theory that mm-hmm. he, he defected or he was a spy undercover. Yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. That's a possibility. Would have been the right time I like period. the alien abduction one. Yes. Well, again, there's still no evidence of any of it. That's what's right. so mysterious. Yeah, there's no evidence to suggest that he was a spy. And then it also seems strange to me, like you're a Soviet spy, you're going to meet your handler or whatever in the middle of Antarctica. You're going to walk four miles without hesitation. You'd think that he would have prepared for that. Obviously, he wasn't prepared for a four-mile hike. Well, maybe he was. That's why we can't find him. Oh, like they, they took him? Yeah, like maybe they ended up meeting him. Oh, and he's okay somewhere. He's in Russia, hanging out? He's, he's with Epstein. Robert Dish, if you're listening. <laughs> Not to make light of your disappearance. That's rude. <laughs> yeah. It is a sad story. It is, yeah. He was only 24. We don't really know what happened, though, so... Well, it's sad for his family and friends. Well, obviously, yeah. Either way, likely, it's probably not a good ending for him. No, probably not. Yeah, unless he's living up in Russia. So, yeah, that's essentially the mysterious tale of, of Carl Dish. And, you know, I thought about doing, a, like, a longer episode on this, um, but I didn't find that much more information. That's kind of the crux of the story. Okay. Um, well, it's, it's a sad story, but it's, it's appropriate to get us into the mood for what you're about to cover. Yes, and... Before we jump into my main topic, there's one more quick story. All right, so this this next uh, tragic mystery, and it's I don't know if it's so much of a mystery, but I kind of think that there's a mysterious twist at the end. So that's, are you just telling a sad story? That's why I included it. No, I think there's kind of mystery kind of at the end. So um, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> okay, so this comes from BBC. This took place on October 14th of 1965, and involves uh, three scientists or explorers in, in Antarctica: Jeremy Bailey, David Wilde, and John Wilson. Four men were riding a muskeg tractor and its sledges near the Heme Front Mountains to the east of their base at Haley Research Station in East Antarctica, close to the, the Weddell Sea. This is weird words, man. <laughs> Dude. Uh, okay. The muskeg tractor and its sledges near the Heme Front Mountains to the Haley Research Station and... All right. The muskeg was a heavy-duty vehicle designed to haul people and supplies over long distances on the ice. A team of dogs ran behind. Three of the men were in the cab. The fourth, John Ross, sat behind on the sledge at the back, close to the Huskies. Jeremy, or Jerry, Bailey, a scientist measuring the depth of the ice beneath the tractor, was driving. He and David, or Day, Wild, a surveyor, and John Wilson, a doctor, were scanning the ice ahead. Snow obscured much of the small, flat windscreen. The group had been traveling all day, taking turns to warm up in the cab or sit out back on the sledge. Ross was staring out at the vast ice, snow, and Stella Group Mountains. At about 8.30, the dogs alongside the sledge stopped running. The sledge had ground to a halt. Crevices can be deadly. This vehicle in the 1950s had a lucky escape. So this vehicle referenced here, we're going to put a picture in the show notes, but it shows exactly this tractor teetering over this crevice. You can see. Is it actual photo from this incident? Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, that's freaky. Wow, how did it not go in? So the tractor is basically straddling this crevice, but somehow it opened up when half of it got over. So it's dangling in a sense. Um, And this is what happens next. Ross, muffled with a balaclava and two anoraks, had heard nothing. He turned to see that the muskeg was gone. Ahead, the first sledge was leaning down into the ice. Ross ran up to it to find it had wedged in the top of a large crevice running directly across their course. The muskeg itself had fallen about 30 meters or 100 feet into the crevice. Down below, its tracks were wedged vertically against one ice wall, 
and the cab had been flattened hard against the other. Ross shouted down, Hey! Are you okay down there? There was no reply from the three men in the cab. After about 20 minutes of shouting, Ross heard a reply. The exchange as he recorded it from memory soon after the event was brief, and it follows here. Day. Day's dead. It's me. Is that John or Jerry? Jerry. How's John? He's a goner, mate. What about yourself? I'm all smashed up. Can you move about at all or tie a rope around yourself? I'm all smashed up. Ross tried climbing down into the crevice, but the descent was difficult. Bailey told him not to risk it, but Ross tried anyway. After several attempts, Bailey stopped responding to Ross's calls. Ross heard a scream from the crevice. After that, Bailey didn't respond. Weird. What I found just weird about that, the article doesn't go on to explain anything after that as far as the scream. Like, if he died, you know, in the crevice. Right, what caused the scream? If he was all smashed up and dying from that, you would think that it would be more of like a whimper, like a, you know. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, it could he could have he could have fallen further and maybe that was the scream, but they didn't go into detail what, like, if the scream sounded like. It could be a subterranean ice wolf. Yeah, well, I mean, I know that's where, because of our show, that's where my mind went of like, there may be some creature, some force, some... Well, especially in the earth like that. Yeah, especially in the inner earth, potentially. Uh, How far did he fall? Wasn't that far, was it? 30 meters or something? Yeah, 100 feet initially. Yeah. Yeah. So was the scream at the end... That's far down. I can't believe he survived at all at the beginning. Yeah. It's very, it's super sad. That's really sad. Thank you, Jeremy. Sorry. This has been such a happy welcome back to season two. I know. I just came across. I thought the story was was interesting. And you should yeah. definitely link that picture. It's pretty. Yeah, I'll link the picture in the show notes, guys, so you can see what it looked like where they found the um, the one vehicle that remained atop. So that the wasn't crevice. the one that fell. No, the one that fell was in the crevice. Yeah. Oh. This, okay. but this one was like stuck on top, or yeah. you know, that's sad. Yeah. So. I hope you guys enjoyed the first part of the show with that uplifting story selection. Yeah, sorry guys for this for the downer, uh, but I just wanted to paint kind of the the mystery and the the gloom of the winter as we move on to the north, which is what we're doing next. People are depressed enough as it is with the the dark at five. The dark at five. Oh, yeah, okay. The, well, I'm gonna say we're getting to the North Pole, and it's okay. It's moody. The North Pole was magic well before Chris Kringle ever <laughs> opened up shop there. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, that's true. Because coming up, we're going to be talking about the weird mystery of the North Pole and what it may actually have looked like. And le- less death. And there's there's no death. Okay, good. As far as I know. So stick around, guys. We're going to be getting into something a little more upbeat, a little more fun, and we're going to be coming back with a... No, pa- we're doing it now. Oh, we're doing Patron Stinger now? Yeah. We okay. do it before we go to break so we can come back fresh and just start. Okay. Yeah, that okay. Makes sense? Yeah, let's let's line things up with a Patron Stinger. Okay. All right, well, who do we got up uh, for our first uh, Patron Stinger today? We're going to do Molly. Molly. Oh, that sounds like fun. MDMA or like we're gonna do Molly. As <laughs> um, we're gonna get, we're gonna be rolling here. Interesting second half. But Mo- Molly is a patron. She also sent in a like a story about some lights that she had seen <gasps> in the yes, sky. Yes, we still haven't played. We've been waiting well, till we do another the episode. Stinger is kind of like okay. we won't need to play because it it's it tells a lot of the story in the Stinger. Oh, okay, this was kind of Chris's yeah, idea. Yeah, it was kind of a request on us digging into something she had. Yeah, been it's wondering just, about yeah, some cut up stuff and then a little musical thing. Do it. Okay, let's hear it. Hi, um, my name is Molly Elton. I live in Annapolis, Maryland. I have seen it 
maybe two or three times. My best friend was with me for one of those times. And it's just those lights that fly across the sky in a perfect line and they, you know, will fade out one by one. Usually it's five like orange lights. And it's so bizarre. You know, when you're there, you know, sitting outside doing nothing and you just see like a group of five orange lights moving in unison across the horizon and then I picture like electromagnetic narwhal for some reason shooting lasers out of his out of his horn. Oh, uh, watching us in the skies. So there's an alien that was yeah, talking at the end. I thought it was okay. supposed to be someone in the blue hole that we never see, but he's around us. No, sounds he, like a very fat alien. Yeah. Thanks, Molly. He's just yeah. he's just big. No, that was good. It was psychedelic. I like the the beginning. It just reminded me of like a trip for some reason. The way that the music was well, coming. Her name is Molly. Molly, so Molly, 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 Molly. Thank you so much, Molly. It's good. I Thank liked you. it. Good job, John. That Thank was you. A good stinger. Um, Thanks for patronizing us. Yes. Uh, patronizing. <laughs> any of you guys out there who want to support us and want your own stinger, go over, to our, uh, go over to our Patreon. Go to our website. Click on the Patreon button. You will be able to sign up for our new double episodes. Yeah, that's going to be the jammer. Yeah, and then we are going to be, I think we mentioned earlier, the stingers are going to have to go up in price just so we can slow them down because we have a lot backlog we got to get to our friends. Probably, probably fluctuate depending on how many we get in the future. So, But yeah. if you do want a stinger, now would be the time to sign up. We could, I think it's still going to be that tier for a while. And then, yeah, we'll make a little something for you. Yeah, cool. You guys want to take a break? Yeah. No, let's take a quick break. And when we, get, when we come back, what are we getting into, Jerry? Guys, we are getting into the mysterious north, the forgotten landscape of the original North Pole and the entrance to the inner earth, potentially. Oh, cool. Or something like that. All right. We'll be back in a minute. I do. It's all real. 
They're outside no right. No one's available to take your call. But you can leave what? your story at the sound what? of the tone. No, 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 no. They're, they're outside right now. They're outside. No. Do you have a spooky story? Don't wait until it's too late. Give us a call. Beliefhole.com. And we're back. And we are back. Welcome back. Welcome back, listeners. Ready for juicy hour number two. Yes, I am so ready. Why do you say that without sounding like you're dying? <laughs> I am so ready. There you go. Yeah. No, I'm excited. I am excited. I'm sorry. It's my my uh, tired brain. Broken tired brain does not, betrays my true feelings about this next part. It does remind me of like cramming for a test the way you do this. Well, it's not all. The t- it's most of the time. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> it's it's most well, the thing is, okay, so I have like a certain amount of like ideas and research that I kind of review over the week leading up to it and stories I go through. And then the night before I fall into the rabbit hole and then it's like, oh my, I didn't even think about that, this aspect of it. Then I'm, I, last night it was about 3am when I realized I hadn't even like started on what I planned on doing. I had covered all these auxiliary rabbit holes, conspiracies about the North Pole. Yeah. Have you ever seen his computer? He's the tab king. He just has like five windows. Command click, like 20 command tabs. click, open tab, tab, tab of, oh, that sounds interesting. I'll get to that. I'll get to that. This is why an outline is helpful. Start with an outline. I know, but you don't know what, I don't know what I want to do until I get in the hole, you know, and then I work backward. And then you got to dig your way out the next morning. <laughs> Jeremy's 3 a.m. still digging. Like <laughs> That's what it was like. It was scary. So what did you find deep in the hole, Jer? Well, I'm going to start, I'm going to open with a question. Okay. Ooh, a thought. Okay, and just a brief idea that is I, it rhetorical I jotted or down. Can we answer? You may answer, but I, yeah, it's kind of rhetorical, but please feel free. This question I pose to you, Beliefling's out there. With so many accurate representations on these old maps, could it be that the major aberrations which are carefully detailed aren't simply fantasies or errors of the cartographer at the time, but are representing how things once were in reality on Earth? Hmm, I like that. With that in mind, we'll now be getting into what I call the mystery of Mercator's North Pole, or North Pole. What is it really? What is the moon? What is the moon? <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So um, I'm going to be focusing on a map. Actually, the, I'm focusing on an insert of Mercator's world map from 15, I believe it's a 16th century map. I think it's 1592. We'll get to that. Are you going to have images for um, the show notes for people when they're yeah, listening? This is all going to cool. be in the show notes. And later on, there's actually going to be a slide I might include the slide presentation, but that might be in the Patreon part. So here's the map, fellas, for you. Okay, we're referencing a map, Mercator's World map from 1569, uh, but this focuses on the North Pole. Makes me want to play Settlers of Catan. Absolutely. That's a great game, Chris. Maybe later. But for now, <laughs> uh, we're going to have this picture, or we're going to have this map in our show notes, so definitely check that out. Okay, so you guys get a look at this map here, so I can, I'm going mm-hmm, mm-hmm, to give a description mm-hmm. to our listeners here. Basically, the map depicts the North Pole as a magnetic island, or the Rupus Nigra, surrounded by a giant whirlpool and four continents. Now, this was drawn up by a Mercator I mentioned. Mercator was Gerardus Mercator, a 16th century geographer, cosmographer, and cartographer from the country of Flanders. As you can see here in this picture, we got a central, gigantic mountain rock island made of magnetic stone at the center of the North Pole. Yeah, it looks like there's four... That's weird looking. Four equally sized continents surrounding the water that surrounds the island. Right. It looks like it was almost man-made. Yeah, it, it, lo- it does look... It looks symmetrical. Right. Yeah. It looks like you'd put something very important in the middle of there. Right, like a gigantic magnetic mountain. God's mm-hmm. coaster. God's beer coaster. So we have 
Four, yeah, like Chris said, fairly identical sized or similarly sized islands that surround this central watery lagoon at the North Pole, which at its center has this magnetic mountain fixed as the North Point. It's weird that those four continents all have a mountain range on the outside edge. It does look like a protected sort of area. Yeah, so this is to further describe this to you guys. So there's four islands that surround it, and in between these islands are four rivers that separate the islands from each other that go out to the greater northern waters that then would border like northern Russia and all the northern areas. Uh, Siberia? Scandinavia? Yeah. Um, Basically, I'm going to break this down. So today, people look at this map and they argue a number of things. Uh, Primarily, mainstream cartographers, historians, will argue that this map is essentially a jumbled mix of fantasy from lore, misidentifications by sailors, and representations of what sailors claim to have seen. Rumors, these kinds of things. But I'm going to get to like where this information actually comes from. Cool. Mercator got it from. So to add a little bit of credibility of what Mercator was thinking and his idea of what the North Pole was, we have Chet Van Duzer of Berkeley University. Oh, that guy who describes Mercator's understanding of the North Pole as such. At the center of the map and right at the pole stands a huge black mountain. This mountain was made of lodestone and was the source of the Earth's magnetic field. The central mountain is surrounded by open water and then further out by four large islands that form a ring around the North Pole. The largest of these islands perhaps 700 by 1100 miles and they all have high mountains along their southern rims. These islands are separated by four large inward flowing rivers which are aligned as if to the four points of the compass. Mercator's notes inform us that the waters of the oceans are carried northward to the pole through these rivers with great force, such that no wind could make a ship sail against the current. The waters then disappear into an enormous whirlpool beneath the mountains at the pole and are absorbed into the bowels of the earth. Mercator also tells us that four foot tall pygmies inhabit the island closest to Europe. Hmm. So that's kind of interesting. You can see that here in the map, actually. It's this guy. Pygmy. Oh. Pygmy Island. Yeah. Oh, the mystery is, was this real? Did this exist? Does it exist? Is this what lies beneath the ice sheet? Maybe what creates our magnetic field on Earth, why compasses point north, isn't because of some magnetic field generated by the, the churning of molten iron supposedly at the core. Maybe it's actually this documented giant magnetic mountain at the top. Well, it's interesting because they just discovered through ice core samples and things like that, they've actually discovered that Antarctica was at one time a lush tropical jungle. Exactly. And that's what some of these sources refer to that Mercator was uh, referencing when he was making yeah. the maps. All this ancient knowledge, ancient history about our world, our Earth that we that we used to believe. As time goes on, this is what happens. Explorers, as they go further and further into exploring the northern seas, the maps start changing. And the idea is that, well, they became more accurate. But I'm going to flash over right now. This is a good time to do it so you guys can see what I'm talking about here. And then I'll have links for you guys in the show notes. As always. As always. There's Rohan. I love these old maps. They look like Middle Earth or something. Yeah, Lord of the Rings. So you can see the map here, guys. Um, it's a map we just described. Sorry for those at home that can't see it. <laughs> Way to do a podcast on maps. <laughs> I know. Well, they, it's the idea of the map, just its existence. Next week, we're going to be covering mysterious paintings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. More visuals. Sorry, guys. Um, what I wanted to point out was this. 1512 to 1594 was the Mercator Girard map. And if you guys check it in the show notes here, you can see in this version of the map that this would be the, the, the Pygmy Island right here. Mm-hmm. Now, compare that to a map made shortly after. Oh, it's gone. There's a chunk missing. It's still there, but if you look closely at it... The mountain range is gone. It's underwater. submerged. Yeah. In other words, the water level is rising. Yeah. Climate change from CO2. Exactly. In the 15th, 16th century. Right, yeah. 
But what's interesting is that my argument would be that it is it is plausible that as we had explorers and adventurers going further later on and reporting back, the topography of the maps was evolving, not because they were becoming more accurate and the ones previously were wrong, but potentially... The earth was changing. The earth was changing, yeah. and we were seeing an evolution of that. Right. You know, but we... How far apart were those two maps? Uh, okay, so the first one where you see all of Pygmy Island, that is from 1512, and it was used up to 1594. Okay. The Mercator-Gerard Gerard map. So for almost 100 years, that was used? Yeah, and then in 1628, in the beginning to mid of next century, then we have the same map, but updated, to where we see the Pygmy Island being submerged. How on earth did these people create maps without any technology, without being able to see. Yeah, everything had to be done, you know, in a kind of a primitive way, but also a very like technical. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have no idea what it took to be a cartographer back then. You had to know how to navigate. You had to know how to illustrate. You had to have an astrolabe. An astrolabe? What's mm -hmm. that? That's a badass device that's uh, it's basically a, a, a... I want an astrolabe. It's like a metal dish with like a, a membrane or something and then like metal pieces on top that represent different latitudes and you have it on your ship and then depending on which where you, how you move it, there's a celestial representation of the stars above you so you always know where you are. It's basically oh, like yeah. a really advanced compass that you can take with you. What was the allegedly mythical Nordic stone they used to... Oh, the sunstone? Was that so what it was? Sun, sunstone or skystone? Something like that. Sunstone, I think. Um, anyway, anyway, that's another episode. Yeah. Let's get back to maps. <laughs> <laughs> Hang in there, guys. Super fascinating. Hang in there. So here's a thought I pose. Could there be another explanation for why compasses point north? Rather than electromagnetic currents generated from within the earth, might it be a large mountain made of lodestone? Made of giants. Made of giants. It's yes. definitely more fun. That's another episode. Made of giants. Some mountains are oh. all giants. <laughs> that's we'll right. Gets that later. Mud fossils. Oh. Okay. So lodestone. You heard of lodestone? I have now, about five minutes ago. Lodestone is basically magnetic rock. It translates to coarse stone or leading stone, or journey or way. So sailors first used this, pieces of lodestone suspended on a water or fluid, and that's how they knew which way was north and how they could direct their orientation. It was a compass. That's, hmm. that's the needle of the compass. And there's many reports all throughout cultures and centuries describing a great magnetic mountain at the center or the top of the earth known as Mount Maru or Samiru. Could these be other descriptions of this lodestone mountain? But the idea that, because we, we talked about the inner earth before, the hollow earth idea. And as we get into this description of this map and these rivers that separate these islands, creating this whirlpool, some believe and have suggested that these waters actually enter into the inner earth. And this is what causes the tides. Well, it's interesting because when you first started talking about this the other night, it just reminded me of the hollow earth theory and the, uh, you know, famous mission of Admiral Byrd and his reporting back about how he flew over the North Pole and below him he saw opening up this massive, right, a hole, a massive hole where inside you could actually fly into it and find another world, basically, prehistoric world. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it works well with this other kind of concept. Hyperborea. Yeah. Interesting. Lot. Okay, so this map was based on uh, something called the Inventino Fortunata, which means fortune or discovery. What's interesting here is that he bases a lot of his map on this document. And this document was supposedly written by a Franciscan friar who mm -hmm. traveled in the North Seas and then passed on and summarized in other works. And then those books were lost. And the last recorded account of this work is references to this work in a letter from Mercator to John Dee. 
Oh, yeah. That makes sense. He was Queen Elizabeth's head guy on navigation, helping people exactly. navigate. But he was also... Well, we talked about him before because Aleister Crowley kind of developed his works um, based on the works of John Dee. Because John Dee, you know, he was into scrying and talking to angels and stuff. And But in it, I mean, like his formative years, he started his career by building libraries. He was a mathematician, brilliant dude. But he was in charge of helping Britain basically right. navigate the waters. Yeah, a lot of people say they criticize the map because he got some of his information from John Dee. Yeah, but he was like the most educated person in... Uh, I know, that's the thing. I mean, he was the guy that basically invented the library. Right. The collection of knowledge at the time. Um, oh, and the other fascinating thing is that, yeah, like you said, Aleister Crowley, he thought he was a, a reincarnation of John Dee's, John Dee's partner. assistant. Yeah, his medium, Ed Kelly. Right. Um, just so weird, just how these things connect, mm -hmm. you know. But that makes sense too, because as we go further on, you'll see the idea of under the North Pole, the land of Hyperborea, right? This mythological underworld where the gods live, um, that some believe the Aryan race came from. And there's the whole like Hitlerism, Nazi fetish with Hyperborea. Right. But also by uh, Madame Lebats Blavatsky, mm -hmm. the theosophist. And a lot of these people in esotericism followed this idea. So it makes sense that Aleister Crowley would connect to that, and it connects back to John Dee, Ed Kelly. It's just weird how this all these everything connects strings. There's so many connections, um, even with dinosaurs. We're getting to the dinosaurs. Okay, I'll get through <laughs> the map stuff here. Okay, for one historical account, a bit of a story. It's maybe something a little more fun for you guys. Pick it up a little bit. This comes from uh, the book called The Smoky God by Willis George Emerson, 1908. This uh, documents the adventures of a man by the name of Olaf Johnson. In this story, he he's a Norwegian sailor, supposedly a true story, where he travels with his father to the Earth's interior at the North Pole. So this kind of corroborates some of this, the way the map is designed. Another story of a journey to the inner Earth. Jansen lived for two years with the inhabitants of an underground network of colonies, Emerson writes. They were 12 feet tall and whose world was lit by a smoky central sun. Their capital city was said to be the original Garden of Eden. Well, that ties right back into our Inner Earth episode. Exactly. Interesting. Okay, so just a quick quote from that book. My father was an ardent believer in Odin and Thor, and had frequently told me they were gods who came from far beyond the north wind. There was a tradition, my father explained, that still farther northward was a land more beautiful than any that mortal man had ever known, and that it was inhabited by the Chosen. So this connects to the idea of Hyperborea. In Greek mythology, Hyperboreans were a race of giants who lived beyond the North Wind. Same reference, right? So you have it coming from the, the Nordic traditions of Thor and yeah. the idea of the, the beyond the North Wind, and then you have it in the Greek tradition. Well, it's also interesting because it's talking about giants that are 12 feet tall. Mm -hmm. And what do we know from like the biblical idea of giants, the Nephilim? Yeah. Well, the Norwegian or the Nordic traditions, they come from, I'm pretty sure, double check this, but um, one of the original lands where the giants came from was called Nephilim. Really? Sounds a lot like Nephilim, Nephilim, doesn't it? Oh, that's weird. I wonder if the land might have been named after... I'm not sure if that's the land the giants came from, but it's one of the couple worlds that came out of the abyss in the beginning of creation. We'd have to look into that. Oh, weird. But... In the Nordic tradition? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, historical references of this hyperborea, this place under the North Pole. Ptolemy, who's a Greek mathematician, astronomer, geographer, he placed hyperborea in the North Sea, same area. He called it the Hyperborean Ocean. Herodotus, famous historian, I won't go into all that, although he did say there was a poet... Aristides, who wrote a poem of the Hyperboreans, he describes uh, people, the Aramaspi, about a journey to the Isodones who are estimated to lived in the Kazakh steppe. Beyond these lived the one-eyed Aramaspians. <laughs> Further north, the gold-guarding griffins. And beyond these, the Hyperboreans, 
Herodotus assumed that Hyperborea lay somewhere in Northeast Asia. And so right above that would be the North Sea going up in this hollow earth area. But that's right around where Tartaria is supposed to be. Oh, yeah. Right? Like Northern Russia. And what's interesting is when he references uh, further on the gold guarding griffins. Griffins are supposedly the, the icon of Tartaria. Well, it's the an ancient civilization connecting point there. Yeah, and for those who don't know, Tartaria is. We're going to get into it in the future, but it's basically the idea of this this lost civilization where there's evidence of it all over the world. Part of this reset civilization, this idea where we were, our race has been destroyed, our knowledge is gone in fairly recent times. We're talking about uh, this ancient history stuff and alternative history is interesting. And Herodotus is a he's a controversial figure though because he's definitely written a lot of stuff that seems to have been exaggeration or. Lore. Oh yeah, there's conjecture and debate about. He did write about dogmen though, so probably about a lot of stuff. The Sinocephali. Yeah, but I just wanted to finish. What's interesting in these maps that are kind of bizarre. I already mentioned the sea level rising that mm-hmm. we saw in the different times of the map. I think suggesting that these were potentially real uh, extractions of of what they were seeing um, over time. And then this, I thought this was interesting. We'll just skip to the fun stuff. How about that? Okay, and this is going to be in the notes. There is a island in this map called Friesland. All of these islands like around uh, northern Russia or what was Rus and other areas bordering this map around the North Pole and these islands, they're all there. You have Iceland and then you have Greenland above it, but then you have this island called Friesland. And if you look at it close up, you can see very uh, explicit descriptions of the the mountain lines. Yeah, very detailed. Names of cities and towns. The cartography is extremely deliberate and careful and precise. And it's a place that no longer exists, right? It's not there anymore. The island just doesn't exist. Interesting. So there's all kinds of conjecture about uh, what it is and everything. And I think what's interesting about the subject is that, you know, we have these things throughout history. We have historical records, references, stories, maps, things that show a lot of detail that holds up to what we see today. And we, you know, mainstream scientists, historians, they look at that and they say, yeah, that's that's real. That's there, you know. Oh, but the city of Troy doesn't exist. So this all must be fiction. All right. You know, oh, uh, well, we see the city, you know, Greece and everything, but uh, sinocephali aren't real or centaurs never existed, which sure, it's... It's crazy because we don't see them today. But just because we don't see them today doesn't mean that they're not real. Like, why do we look at depictions of the Anunnaki or whoever? And, you know, mainstream would say, well, none of that's real. That This was a metaphor. But all of these that were specific things, even though the ancients, they never say, this isn't real. This is just fantasy. It's fiction. The mainstream suggests that the ancients just didn't distinguish between fiction and reality and right. they just merged it all together and so we have to pull it apart yeah we look at everything as a myth now looking back and what you're saying now about these maps is modern historians will say yeah on this map that did exist but on that same map this didn't exist because it's not there anymore right and that's that's my point is like this could be a, a kind of reality of the north pole instead of it just being water you know which is what it shows today at the north pole is just an arctic sea but what could be under that sea, under that ice? It's under there. Yeah. Could there be this different idea of what the nature of our earth is? Could this be an entrance to a kind of an underworld that we've talked about? I mean, you can dig into these maps. You can go deep. You can look at the history of our world, what it might have been like, what it might be now that they're hiding. And we'll have more notes. If you guys want to look more into this, there's a lot more information that you can go into. That uh, We'll link that in the show notes, guys. Intriguing. I think it is fascinating just to know what we once thought about the North Pole. Yeah, and what existed there and the, the fantasies, the stories around it. We don't have to go further into it anymore, but I think that's the most important thing to take away from this is, you know, you can think that this is all silly and all in these maps, because there are hundreds of thousands of maps at the time with the same depiction of this North Pole. And yeah, we can just throw it away and that's fine. Like I don't, everyone has their opinion. And, I, and I'm and i not even saying that I totally believe that this was real. It could have been. Um, it's interesting to look at the potential reality right. that may have been. I still believe that we we can't know 
how things were or even how things are in a lot of ways. And to, to look back when something doesn't align with how we see things today or what we believe today, to just drop it in the fiction category, that's ridiculous. That's like people at uh, where I got this, uh, talking about Friesland, there's an article and I'll link this in the show notes, but I, I clicked on uh, the wiki talk section. What's that? Wiki talk. Okay. So to give an example of the, this is what I wrote. To give an example of the open-minded, unbiased, measured, and sincere academic discussion surrounding this phantom island of Friesland and the hallowed halls of those that write our knowledge over at Wikipedia, let's take a look at what Wikitalk, or talk pages, also known as the discussion pages, what they say. That's These are the administration pages where the editors of Wikipedia can discuss improvements to articles or other Wikipedia pages. <clears throat> so these are some excerpts that I grabbed just because I thought it was interesting to see how it works behind Wikipedia. So they're debating, uh, okay, so this is the first guy, kind of like this guy, because he's suggesting that there's an alternative. This island might have existed of Friesland that's in this map, uh, but he's suggesting it might have been a continent that we know, or an island that we know today. Anyways, this is him. It is implied that Friesland, or Fixland, was purely imaginary, not born from any actual sightings, measurements, and then replicated repeatedly as a phantom island, again, without valid reference, even though the maps show significant change over time, as if improved sightings were being made. So he makes the kind of suggestion yeah. that I did, right? Like, the maps seem to change. Mm -hmm. Updating. One theory that was published, which other editors on here consider to be, quote, a uh, fringe author, suggests that the island is not a phantom island, but is actually the island of Newfoundland, uh, longitudinally misplaced. So that's a fair, hmm. you know, yeah. Newfoundland. And then the response was, the idea that Friesland was supposed to represent Newfoundland is so mixed up with fringe pseudo-historical bullshit that I am prone to dismiss it. However, so are all the other postulated theories as to what it was supposed to represent. The simple reality is we, we have no idea what Friesland was supposed to represent or even if it was supposed to represent anything real. Every theory out there is mere speculation. We simply don't know. However, we can determine which theories to mention in our article, but this is what's interesting. Oh, okay, yeah. This is where the they choose what to put in the Wikipedia article. Interesting. However, we can determine which theories we should mention in our article by examining why the theory is proposed. The context in which each theory is mentioned in sources. Those that are primarily used in the context of supporting fringe pseudo-historical bullshit should be given very little weight. The quote, It's Newfoundland claim is primarily made by proponents of the Templars came to America theory, a very fringe idea. This is why I hesitate to mention it. So it goes on and they debate, but it's this, this idea that like, well, this is a fringe pseudo-historical, it's not mainstream, so let's keep it out of Wikipedia. Well, it definitely sounds like that particular editor, too, has some pretty intense animosity towards certain theories. Oh, yeah, just anything like not mainstream. You have a paradigm, you have a, a, um, a way of thinking that is accepted as the norm, right? right? And if it goes against that, this is, this is just kind of interesting to see it in action. Yeah. Although, it, who, who are the editors? Aren't these just anybody? I mean, can't you edit anybody edit Wikipedia? Or are these people that actually like work for Wikipedia? I'm not totally sure. These are the people that are behind deciding what goes what up. goes on these pages, and at some point it gets moved to the top. You can see someone suggesting an idea that may be kind of out there, but interesting, but it might not even get mentioned. Or if yeah. it is, it'll be belittled and poo pooed, which you can read in Wikipedia all the time. You know, we've talked about that before. So, anyways, that's all I have. Wow. Uh, thanks for hanging in there with the. Uh, <laughs> I'll never do a visual episode again. I know. <laughs> Uh, sorry guys, if you're not into maps or, uh, but I think the past history thing is interesting. What's lost. And I think it's hard cause I do, there are some times where I want to like talk about some visual evidence and right. it's hard to try to describe it. You know, um, what's what we think is lost, but isn't lost dinosaurs. And that's coming up. Yes. And also Russian geoengineering. Oh, really? Yeah. I'll just mention, I'll touch on it. A couple <laughs> slides. <laughs> uh, did we want to take a break? 
We're actually going to do the other stinger. Patron stinger for... Oh, yes, for, for Ben. Ben. Benji, good friend of ours and fan of the show. He's the lost brother. The lost brother, yes. Yes, he looks very similar to us. I don't know what dad was and doing. And he's very similar in sentiment. <laughs> we heard that he is a 311 fan. Yeah, he is yeah, oh. a big 311 fan. All you millennials out there, Google 311 and get ready for something interesting. Millennials probably would know. Yeah, we're millennials technically. But Zoomers wouldn't. Is that the next next one? Yeah. If you were born in the 90s, you might not be familiar. No. I mean, I think they still play, but this song specifically was like an enormous hit. You've heard it. All right, Benji, this is for you, bud. Play that guitar really well. Well, we want to thank you, Ben, for being <laughs> with us. A funky man with a beard who rocks. He likes to jump in the hole where his mind gets juiced. When we dive into fringe and we drink some booze. Have you ever seen a ghost in dark hallways? Displaying some mist that made you say, no way. Play a clip of government deception. Now you're in the hole. Thanks for being a patron. Leave a like that we know you love. Know that we will always be around, round. And now we want to thank our friend Ben, Ben. And we heard he loves the Browns. Yeah, everybody got their air drumming at the end. <laughs> that was great. I like that. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben Safi. I like how you fit in all those little details. Yeah. FedEx ground. Love oh, the you did hear the FedEx ground part. Mm-hmm. If you guys are out there and you you sign up to be a patron and you get a stinger, send us any information about yourself and it helps yeah, inform John's. Uh, the more information, the better. Just personality stuff or things you like. Yeah. Or I'll whatever. make it for you. All right, guys. Well, I hope that you enjoyed. Are we taking a break? Yeah, let's take a break. Oh, okay. We're going to take a break? We're just going to take a break, and we'll come back and explain what's going to be in the next part. Yeah, well, because I want to give a little information to the uh, regular listeners out there and uh, give them some dinosaur treats. Amen. Stick around. We'll see you in a sec.
will also remove all condiments from your planet, making your meals frustrating and leaving your mouth chalky and gross. You can also share your paranormal experiences by visiting beliefhole.com and leaving a speak pipe. That is all. We leave you now. Welcome back, guys. Hope you had a wonderful break. We did. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy's rolled up all his maps and put, it, put them back <laughs> put into his car. And burned them in the fire, <laughs> never to be seen again. No, it's interesting. It's interesting. And uh, it ties into this upcoming segment here we're going to do in our extension. Speaking of ancient maps and ancient landscapes, we're going to be discussing the roamers of ancient landscapes. And do they still exist today? Dinosaurs. Ooh. The last little foot, as I like to call him. Mikelly and Bembe. Mikelly and Bembe. I'm excited. Maybe we could, when we do in, in the edit, we can in post just drop like dinosaur sounds mm-hmm. when I'm talking about... Jeremy, tilts your so oh. it's towards you. Is that better? I like hearing his, no- his nose breaths. <laughs> Hear my nose hairs talking to each other. Um, <sighs> that's a weird image. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Tim. Hey, John. I'm all broken up. I don't know. What? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, what were you saying? Cut me out of this episode. <laughs> what were you saying there? Um, oh, I was just making a joke. I was just saying maybe we could take some of the dinosaur sounds uh-huh. and just drop them in my section so it's at least fun. <laughs> you know, like it sounds fun. I'm describing maps. No, it was fun, Jeremy. But this next part's going to be even more fun. So if you're not a patron yet, sign up for Patreon. Go sign up and support your favorite show. It's just going to get better from here, guys. Yep. So Mikelly and Bembe, for those of you who are not familiar, you guys know about Mikelly and Bembe, right? Jerry, I know you. Of course, I had a filing cabinet with a folder that said Mikelly and Bembe. Did you really? Mm-hmm. It's Mikelly and Bembe. <laughs> and Bembe. Mikelly and Bembe. It's uh, a fun word to say. You know what it means? Uh, didn't you just say? No, I, Littlefoot? I said the last Littlefoot. I, that was my reference to the '90s movie Littlefoot oh, okay. or Land Before Time. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Excellent film, but no, uh, it means uh, one who can stop the flow of rivers. By the native people. Oh, yeah. I knew that. Because it's a big dinosaur. Yeah, one that stops the flow of rivers because it's so gigantic. Right. Yeah. I thought dinosaurs weren't real. Well, they are real. There's, Come on. There's two schools of thought on this. Oh, there's, you got the, one good school of thought. Well, there, there have been hoaxed skeletons. Sure. Dinosaurs. I want to do an episode on dinosaurs where it's, uh, were dinosaurs real? And if so, are they still alive? Well, this is so not you get that, to ask both questions. This is not that episode, Jeremy. This episode is dinosaurs were certainly real and they're still around. I won't, I won't reference any Eric <laughs> Dubay <laughs> lore theories. <laughs> Um, I thought all dinosaur like is it true? I heard no. this somewhere that all all dinosaur bones in museums are not actual skeletals. That they're replicas. They're actually just recreations of parts of things. The fossils are behind lock and key. That's that's one argument. And I don't know that we can say either way because none of us have gone to the museum and done a test or asked to see the bones firsthand. Well, we know but that Eric Dubay has pointed out, and among mm-hmm. other people, I know he's a flat Earth guy, uh, pointed out that. I think Owen Benjamin said that too. I'm sure he probably lifted it from. Uh, He's not a flat Earth guy though. From Savanye. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, anyways, anyways, I think we just drove away our last few people. Well, we're we're not. Yeah, we're not saying either way what it is. We're just. We're, this is about conversation. Yeah, it's about ideas. So, 
Yes, dinosaurs. Go, people dig them gonna, up. We're gonna pretend all the time. That people dig them up all the time. People dig them up all the time. They do. But yeah, that's true. true. Whether or not what you see on display in museums are the actual bones that are dug up in the fields, or they're replicas, and the other ones are kept behind lock and key for safety or whatever, that's a different discussion. But we'll table it. We're talking about the dinosaurs that might still be roaming our planet today in the deep, deep regions of our unexplored ranges of the world, like the you know deep parts of Africa, deep Africa, mm -hmm. in the Congo, places like that. Um, that's what we're going to be talking about today. And we're going to be talking about um, the work of, what's his name? Uh, McCall, Dr. McCall. Uh, he was a cryptozoologist, but he was also the, uh, he was a biologist at the University of Chicago. And he kind of made the legend of Michelium Bembe. He really helped to bring it to life in modern culture. You have a actual testimony, eyewitness accounts, right? Yeah, I've got some eyewitness accounts we're going to read, some stories, and then I also have a, a clip to play of an eyewitness account we'll have to do the translating for. Are we going to prove that Michele Meme is real in the next part? I think we're going to give it a damn good uh, potential possibility that's real. Wow, you really sold me. We're going to put out some damn good eyewitness testimony. Okay, some fascinating, compelling evidence. At least some interesting stories, and uh, definitely more than the magnetic mountain map. Okay, well, at least there's a picture. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've got pictures of Michele and Bembe. They're illustrations, but one is a video clip. Oh, great. So that's coming up in the uh, extension. Come no, on. Not extension. Have an original thought. It's going to come up in the deep digger. The uh, It's going to come up in the widening the widening of the hole. Ugh. Hole widener. <laughs> got a ring to it. Stay tuned for a hole widener episode. <laughs> we need a name for it. No, but I've been looking forward to doing this topic for a while. This is one of the fun, uh, one of the more fun, fringy discussions out there is the, the potential existence of prehistoric creatures on our planet today. I like that. That sounds yeah. fun. And it's, there's not just, we can get into some other stuff. Maybe if we have time other than Michele and Bembe, there's plenty of um, supposed, what we would call today cryptids, but are in reality leftovers from a, the Jurassic period or the right. species that didn't just evolve into birds. They existed, died off, but some still survived. Right. Right. Like alligators. It sounds fun. I'm yeah. excited. Cool. You, I'm excited for the next do I part. Do you guys want to tease story or should we just call it? Yeah, let's call it. Yeah. Get your butts over to Patreon, sign up, and listen to part two. Yes, please Hallelujah. do. Hallelujah. We are moving. Season two. Yes, thank you. Hopefully you loved the first part of this first episode. We have been gone for a month, so we're getting back into the flow a little bit. We are trying something new, new schedule. So bear with us. This season is going to be off the hizzy. Yeah, and for all the new listeners out there, uh, some recommended episodes. Check out the last four episodes uh, leaving the Halloween season uh, before our break. A lot of fun stories. One. Really great. I think some of my favorite episodes. Episodes, uh, Bell Witch, Black Eyed Kids. Oh, great true stories in our Halloween episode from, from actual people who witnessed some really bizarre stuff. So definitely check that out. All right. All right, guys. We we'll love you. We'll see you on the, on the other side. Yes. Yeah, go to Gleeful.com, click on the Patreon button, and sign up if you want to hear the rest of the show. And all future episodes. Okay. All right. We'll see you. I try so hard to find